Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at Season 1, Episode 8, Caesarian. Caesarian? Caesarian? We say Caesarian, but you know what? You're right, it should be Caesarian, really. Already I'm a bit confused. Okay, anyway, well, anyway, it was written by William J. MacDonald and directed by Steve Schill. It was originally broadcast on October 16, 2005. Hello, Rhiannon. How are you going? Hey, Matt. I'm good. In this episode, Caesar pursues Pompey to Egypt, only to find Alexandria embroiled in a dynastic dispute between the boy prince Ptolemy and his sister Cleopatra. He installs Cleopatra on the throne, resulting in a prolonged siege. So what did you think of this episode, Rhiannon, at the outset? Kind of a a broad picture. Did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? What did you think? I enjoyed the politicking, and I thought there were some really great speeches here, one in particular right at the end. I thought it was an interesting portrayal of Cleopatra, which we'll come to when we meet her. Uh, you know me, though. I'm a prude. There was too much sex. <laughs> Some of it quite unnecessary. <laughs> I hate to say it. I kind of think you're watching the wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I, I think that it's um, it's right to acknowledge that, you know, that, that as it does in the first, I think it was the second episode, that the conquered or slaves, are, you know, they can be used and abused in this way and that there's sex outside marriage and divorce is easy and all of that. It just, there's a there's a very lengthy scene. When I rewatched it, I just thought, oh, I'm going to fuck. Because there's a weird scene where it's sex and the siege happening at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I'd yeah. rather have seen the warfare and I don't think of myself as violent. <laughs> and uh, it's it's the sort of show that, well, if there were warts, it would be showing you warts and all. So <laughs> I guess you got to take what you can get with this show. Most of this episode takes place in Alexandria, or in Egypt at least. Uh, but at the very start and at the very end, you get what is just a glimpse of Rome. Uh, mm. So the first one you get is Brutus returning home, back to Rome, being embraced by his mother, Sevilia, and then her kind of walking away without saying a word to him. And it was very... It, it said a lot without saying absolutely anything at all. No, I, th- I think it's a testament to the quality of the acting there. They do it all with their faces and their gestures and the way their bodies are even quite tense. She's pleased his home, but she's not pleased with the situation for various reasons, I guess. And you do have to guess that she doesn't like the fact that he's been defeated or had to run away. And also she presumably wanted revenge on Caesar. Yeah. So season one, which she's not Mm. entirely happy about considering she's been jilted. Although that was quite a while ago now, but anyway. uh, Well, (laughs) it was done in a spectacular way and other things have happened since then. I'm not surprised she's Mm. held on to it. Plus, there's the fact that the Brutus is essentially uh, going back on his own morals by capitulating to Caesar and accepting him as, you know, the ruler of Rome, turning his back on the Republic. He's by far the most interesting character in this episode, I think. And he almost but not quite bookends the episode 
his coming mm. home and then we're going to see him in the Senate at the end in an interesting scene and then right at the end it goes back to Caesar but I feel like his his mental state and the way that he has to justify his actions to himself and sometimes can't justify them and his conversations with people like Cicero uh, what's really interesting to me about this you see I like the talking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the not talking in that first scene it doesn't have to be dialogue his inner conflict that's what I'm trying to say his inner conflict is really interestingly portrayed and the other scene that we get in Rome at the start of the episode is is Ian McNeese giving a bit of backstory uh, filling in a few gaps there's a notice about a slave who has escaped, which is a little bit grim. Uh, mm-hmm. have, we, have we talked about this before? I forget that, you know, there, there were slave catchers and some slaves had to wear collars with, you know, indications of where they could be, should be returned to. This is a whole thing in Rome. So that's, I don't want to say it's a nice note because it is awful to think of this, but it, it adds a note of realism kind of behind mm, the politics. It's a nice bit of detail, yeah. Mm. A fine reward is offered for the return of a slave woman stolen or absconded from the house of Claudius Appius. The following noblemen returning from Greece have received pardon of Caesar and must not be harmed. Publius Servilius Gasca, Marcus Dullius Cicero, Gaius Cassius Longinus, and Marcus Junius Brutus. The traitor Pompey has fled to Egypt. Glorious Caesar follows. He also says a few names of people who have received pardon. So these are senators who were with Pompey who have come back to Caesar's fold, if you want to put it that way. Publius Servilius Casca, Marcus Tullius Cicero, Gaius Cassius Longinus, and I do like how he says Brutus's name, Marcus Junius Brutus, with a bit of a an eyebrow raise and a flourish kind of thing there, as if to say, oh, look who's siding with Caesar. And the other thing that I like about this is that all of those people that he named, uh, minus Cicero, are involved, uh, spoiler, in the conspiracy against Caesar in the coming episodes. Absolutely. So, and yeah. as I turned and said, the person I was watching it with, they'd ungrateful aren't they <laughs> not grateful for that mercy <laughs> and of course Cicero there was debate about whether he knew although there's no yes. evidence he was he's an active participant so they will not show any gratitude for Caesar's mercy here if you read it as mercy of course they read it as shameful more news about what's been going on it's a good backfiller yes uh, Ian McNeese continues uh, Pompey has fled to Egypt glorious Caesar follows that's the, the crucial bit of backstory, I guess. It saves with a previously on Rome, doesn't it, to have <laughs> Ian McNeese just come in and do it himself. <laughs> it's a really nice way of doing it. And, mm. I mean, we know if we've watched the previous episode that Pompey has met his end there. So that news mm. obviously hasn't flown through to Rome yet. So it's interesting in that it tells us something about how long it takes for news to travel. Of course, Caesar doesn't know yet. He'll find out very dramatically in this episode. Um, and I also like the glorious Caesar because it tells us something about the um, partiality of this particular outlet for news. It's a bit like the tabloid, tabloid press will use these, uh, <laughs> <laughs> these partial adjectives. <laughs> yes, uh, Rome very quick to get on board there with uh, Caesar. So now we get our first view of Egypt and it was a, it was a nice change of scenery, I think. I like the kind of effort that it went into 
to show you that there is a, a lot of impressive buildings and architecture around. It showed you a bit. We saw, you know, the legs of statues sometimes behind Caesar, um, a random head sitting there in the desert while uh, Varinus is waiting behind a rock at one point. It's interesting because it shows us that, I mean, normally it annoys me when they show ruins the way that we say see ancient Greece or Rome now is obviously not the way it presented then. And I think this series is quite good at not doing that. It shows us these buildings as complete and also the down and dirty parts of Rome. But of course, mm. Egypt, uh, Egyptian building and culture was much, much older. So there would have been ruins. We know that, that there were ruins by the time this narrative's taking place. So that was interesting. I actually didn't notice the first time I watched it, but I noticed the second time that we do see the Pharos lighthouse in the distance when Caesar first arrives. So this is the oh, light- nice. Yeah, this is the lighthouse that goes all the way back to Alexander. So Alexandria is named after him, created in his honor. But I, I would say that what they showed of Alexandria, I don't think they'd had much budget to recreate, did they? Um, no, no. So you, it's very interiory. It sort of reminds me a little bit of the way I Claudius presented Rome, that it's all these interior, quite boxed-in scenes. Hmm. A lot of that is maybe necessitated by this episode is a lot of politicking. Mm. So that doesn't need to be outside. You do get the outside kind of things of, you know, the soldiers waiting around outside, a mob confronting them, I guess, at one point. There was a scene actually where, um, and it was quite early on, where there are some boys throwing rocks yeah. at Pullo and he picks up a big rock and throws it back. And actually uh, the boys run off saying, uh, Yala Imshi, and I, I know from my... My, my wife uh, being disapproving sometimes that this is Arabic for go away. So, <laughs> Which, of course, they wouldn't have been speaking at the time. <laughs> no, I, I kind of think that was a bit of an oversight. <laughs> but it does often happen in, uh, in historical fiction that, for example, if they set something in the north of Britain, we don't really know what language the Picts spoke, so they do some form of Gaelic, which isn't related at all. Um, mm. But it's you, you, you deal with what you've got that's sort of in the right region, I suppose. They could have had them speaking a form of Greek or ancient Egyptian. It sort of looked like the whole of Alexandria was that bit on the beach, whereas it was a grand and great city. But, mm. you know, they've created Rome at great cost. They can't really yes. create a whole other city just for one episode, I guess. That's right. If we turn our attention, though, to the, the politicking side of things, uh, what did you think of, of that interaction? If we take it to, you know, maybe a, a little bit of scene at a time, in the first instance where you've got Caesar going in and talking to Ptolemy and his advisors, maybe a bit of background at this point. Uh, who, who were the Ptolemies and what was the current political climate in Egypt? <laughs> Very febrile. Well, I've already mentioned Alexander and the Ptolemies go back to Alexander. They're not directly related to him, but they are a Greek dynasty, so a Macedonian Greek dynasty. The first Ptolemy was one of the generals of Alexander, and when Alexander dies in 323, his empire is divided up, mm. and Ptolemy gets Egypt. So they're kind of uh, a Greek dynasty of pharaohs, although we think of the pharaohs as being the, being the native Egyptian dynasty, but they take on that role, they take over that role while being culturally still Greek, largely speaking Greek to one another 
and in fact it is the language of power in that part of the world and Cleopatra is noted for being probably the first but certainly one of the few to learn the native language of the Egyptians so they're mm. kind of set apart in that way they are Greek they're very powerful Egypt is very wealthy you know Rome has interaction with them partly because there's so much power and wealth and grain in particular which Caesar mentions in this part of the world, we don't necessarily think of Egypt as being fertile, but it, it, it certainly is at this period. And at this point, the Ptolemies are in disarray. So Ptolemy Twelfth, Cleopatra, and Ptolemy XIII's father has died, and uh, now there's a dispute between his children as to who should rule. There are two mm. boys, two Ptolemy boys, they're both called Ptolemy, and there's Cleopatra, and there is also her sister, Arsinui. Okay, so they very much streamlined that storyline just down to Ptolemy the Thirteenth and his sister, I think. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that makes sense. Otherwise, you know, it would get too complicated for a drama. I kind of enjoyed the portrayal of Ptolemy the Thirteenth as this brat child who his advisors are desperately trying to, con- you know, to keep him under control so that he doesn't say the wrong thing to all-powerful mighty Caesar and, and mm. kind of wreck everything for them. Uh, and, of course, it doesn't work because eventually Caesar does come in and besiege. He should be a little bit older. He should be a, a sort of early teenager. I think they would have known that. They went for a younger child to make him more brat-like and this idea that that much power resides in someone so young and everyone's kind of carefully tiptoeing around him when he's i don't know eight or nine maybe Um, uh young actor named mark chisholm so he was born in 1993 so the episode aired in 2005 so that possibly made him 11 12 yeah okay i think i'm just used to uh young people often portraying younger than themselves you know when you get the 25 year olds doing high school kids (laughs) kids <laughs> but i think i think they are making him look a bit younger than that too from yeah from my view uh, certainly younger than he should be the background is that his his father so ptolemy the 12th had been an ally of pompey mm. um and had left cleopatra and him as co-rulers and indeed they are married which is typical something that the ptolemies took from the previous um pharaonic from the pharaohs this idea of um sibling marriage to kind of maintain power within the dynasty but you know it doesn't work here if they could see into the future of rome it it never works when the roman emperors leave the empire to more than one descendant does it it's always it's always chaos um always ends up to an argument yeah yeah so there's a civil war kind of brewing in the background um and cleopatra has actually fled to syria so that's not Mm. utilized here because she doesn't seem that far away Okay, so she's not captured as she's as it's shown in this episode. The dynamic between Ptolemy and his advisors was was quite interesting. Mm. It struck me as realistic, and f- from what I can tell, uh, say from you know Plutarch and those sort of accounts, all of those advisors were there in those capacities. I liked uh, Ptolemy's title, so uh, he of the two ladies which is a protector of unified Egypt. Uh, he of the Sejin Bee, which apparently was Upper and Lower Egypt. They kept calling him the Sejin the Bee. So um, a nice amount of titles there. Also, Son of Ra, who's the sun, sun mm. god, and the divine. 
And later on, Cleopatra is referred to as divine, which is a reminder that Egypt deifies its rulers in a way that Rome doesn't do. Although it will have to cease as dead, <laughs> but not living ones. So, yeah, that was um, all really good. But at the, at the same scene, you've got an absolute unit of a man bringing in a little wicker basket, setting it in front of Caesar and just unceremoniously pulling out the head of Pompey. I've got a mental image of it happening, you know, by his hair almost, but um, and setting it down in front of Caesar, for which uh, Ken Cranham got paid for, by the way. <laughs> he got paid for this episode. <laughs> for the model of his head. Yeah, yeah. Even though his so, body had already been burned. <laughs> that's right. Shame on the house of Ptolemies for such barbarity. Shame. You are enemies. He was a consul of Rome. A consul of Rome. To die in this sordid way. Quartered like some low thief. Shame. Caesar really sells that scene and the absolute fury about how Pompey was unceremoniously dispatched and treated. Yeah, which is which is in all of our sources that he was very angry at this because, as as he says here, consul of Rome, because Pompey was a powerful and important Roman who should be treated with respect. And mm. uh, we certainly see the Egyptians not understanding that he's just the enemy. Uh, I mean, Plutarch gives us a slightly more nuanced kind of insight into what the Egyptian players here might have been thinking. And do you want me to read it? Because I think it's quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. He says that Theodotus, who's also one of the advisors we see here, making a display of his powerful speech and rhetorical art, set forth that neither course was safe for them. If they received Pompey, they would have Caesar for an enemy and Pompey for a master. While if they rejected him, Pompey would blame them for casting him off and Caesar for making him continue his pursuit. So they either take Pompey in and then Caesar's going to be mad or they let Pompey go and then um, Caesar won't be happy with them for not putting him in prison, I guess. So they kind of decide to uh, take the easiest course, cut the Gordian Mm. knot, simplify things. The best course was to send for the man, Pompey, and put him to death. By doing so, they would gratify Caesar and have nothing to fear from Pompey. Yeah, if only. (laughs) To this, he smilingly added, and I think they use this line of Theodotus, we are told a dead man does not bite. It's a good line. His dead head has the ability to bite. It annoys Caesar. Mm -hmm. Um, More than annoys, it really angers him. And again, we get to see Kieran Hines acting chops here. He's... It almost seems unfair that he's kind of showing his authority over a mere boy, but the boy is so annoying that it's quite enjoyable to watch. You really get a sense of his authority, (laughs) don't you? His uh, grandeur here, Mm, his presence. mm. Yeah, uh, well, well, Caesar is kind of doing that through this entire episode. He's very much showing himself as being superior, even if he's coming from an inferior position, almost. You know, he's there with the less men. It's not his country, but he's still very much saying, I am the one here in control. We've been reading Caesar's text in another context, and that sense of self-assurance seems very true Mm. to him, doesn't it? So Caesar decides to remain in Egypt uh, with a few things on his agenda. One is that he demands the man who dispatched with Pompey in the previous episode 
I found it quite diplomatic that he didn't just go, you know, that is you, Ptolemy, or your advisors. He literally is after the soldier at this point. Maybe that's playing the long game. And as he says to Mark Antony, because he sends Mark Antony back to Rome, he sends to Mark Antony that he's uh, staying there as well to secure the grain supply. I guess it shows how important Egypt is to Rome when, you know, he's got the consideration of he hasn't got complete control of the Roman Empire. Uh, as Mark Antony tells him, Cato and Scipio are still out there raising an army. And Caesar says, you know, well, when they do have an army, I'll deal with it then. So it's an interesting way to prioritise things, I mm. thought. The mention of the grain supply is interesting, that he needs to keep the people back home happy. Mm. I, I like to think it's a reference, again, to his uh, frequent mention in his war texts of Caesar secured the grain supply. Which... He's always worried about securing that grain, isn't he? Army marches uh... on its belly and all that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that's what's going to keep him popular in Rome if he can ensure that people are fed. Mm. So it's a, mm. it's a good move. They talk here as well about a payment that Ptolemy has to make to Caesar. It was quite a large amount, money that was owed to Pompey, which now that he's dead uh, is a debt that Caesar can pick up. They make it sound like it's money that Ptolemy XII had borrowed, but actually it's a kind of, it's like a bribe for acknowledging that Ptolemy was king back in 59 BCE, mm. which was the year that Caesar was consul. So that's how he can claim it's owed to him. There's, there's a huge amount of money involved. Ptolemy the 13th, the Egyptians aren't happy with that. It also, it explains the dramatic narrative of why the Romans on the face of it have to hang around which enables mm. them to go find Cleopatra. So it works in the, the logic of the, the narrative of this episode too. Ptolemy's advisor, Tony Guilfoyle, the guy from Father Ted. The eunuch. <laughs> yeah, who has every slander about eunuchs thrown at him during the course of the mm. episode. A, a, what, a gelding, a, a woman. Mark Antony calls a... him a woman, doesn't he, I think? Yeah, there was there was a really cutting one as well. A, a wretched woman, Caesar called him, actually. Yeah, that was Caesar who did that. I mean, I guess it's it sort of makes sense in our gender stereotypes as well, but there are instances of that where eunuchs are called by feminine pronouns in Latin mm. literature. So Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's, a, right. there's a whole long poem by Catullus where that happens, where a yeah. follower of Cybele castrates himself and then is referred to as her throughout the rest of the poem. Wow. Okay. I'm not sure what to say about that. I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> brave enough to comment on that. So, <laughs> Yeah. Catullus 63 always stops men short. <laughs> <laughs> I just awkwardly cross my legs and continue on with this podcast. It's very much uh, from the perspective of Caesar, though, playing the long game. Tony Guilfoyle, who's character name I can't recall, says that it's extortion, and it is extortion. It's giving Caesar a reason to back Cleopatra if Ptolemy isn't going to front up with this money, and it's so much money that it doesn't seem reasonable for Ptolemy to be able to do it. So, yeah, it's Pothinus, yeah. Pothinus, Pothinus, who's the, uh, the old eunuch advisor, who's acting as regent, basically, because this boy is too young, even if he is... Yeah. 13 or 14, really. Plutarch actually tells us that it's Pothinus who's offhand, and this 
you know, means that Caesar's going to deal with Cleopatra instead. And the episode seems to push this attitude onto Ptolemy himself, which I quite mm. enjoyed, even though it's not what Plutarch tells us, because it gives us this this ongoing tension, which we've already mentioned in the court, where the advisors are trying to keep a lid on Ptolemy and he just doesn't care. He'll just, you know, have these outbursts. He's a child. Um. <laughs> and it's up to the advisors to apologise for it. Mm. There was this uh, one interesting point where, and I'm going to have to backtrack slightly after I talk about this, but it's actually one of the advisors that gives the go-ahead for the soldiers to go and kill Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. They look towards um, the one advisor who isn't Pythinus, whose name I also can't remember, the the older guy, and he's the one who nods and kind of sends the, sends the soldiers on their way, even though Ptolemy's in the same room. Before that, Caesar sends Varinus to go and find Cleopatra at any cost, uh, who is being held captive. And I, I found it interesting that Caesar gives the order to Varinus that he should obey her in all things within reason. So pretty much, you know, treat her like a queen and with respect. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, that's an order that Varinus disobeys. Because mm, he doesn't obey be her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not the first order that Caesar's given that Varinus has disobeyed, I guess. He did let Pompey go, although he wasn't directly ordered about anything to do with that. But yeah, still. but I think this is also, this is kind of parallel with Brutus, isn't it? That Varinus is constantly battling with his conscience. How much of himself is he going to hand over to Caesar? He didn't want to be there in the first place. He wanted to be at home setting up a business and then all of that got you know, circumstances meant that he, he had to return to the army. Yeah, well, there's something to be said, though, that about Brutus being a senator and Varinus being a soldier who should just follow orders and maybe do what the Queen says if Caesar says that he should. <laughs> anyway. But it would be very boring if they just followed orders. <laughs> mm, <laughs> There'd mm. be no tension there. Should we talk about Cleopatra? We should. Uh, she makes her first appearance halfway through the episode, uh, even though I would arguably say that it's about her, really, this mm -hmm. episode. It's quite clever because she's been talked about in her mm. absence. That's the way you build up. And, of course, she's so famous to us, so we want to see yeah. her, and they withhold. And they don't portray her, of course, with the braided hair, black hair and spectacular makeup that we're used to seeing in the Liz Taylor version of her and that we see on the hieroglyphs. She's mm. She's got very short hair because it's a wig, the the traditional hair uh, style that we're used to seeing. And she's pretty makeupless and bound up and drugged up in this version, which they have invented, but, you know, an interesting take. I did like how plain they made her. She wasn't on her A-game, which I guess you would assume if she is a prisoner. She's not going to have makeup on and wigs and, and everything like that. But... As for the rest of it, what did you think of this being one of the most important female characters in the show that we should be coming across, really? She had some good manipulative plans to get herself in a position of power, I guess. But at the same time, she just seems so powerless in this episode. Well, she works out how to turn that around and how to make herself kind of part of Caesar's plan, I suppose. Mm. Um, and I thought that given that the way Cleopatra is often portrayed as this, you know, sort of femme fatale, 
they dealt with the fact that one of the ways that she makes herself part of Caesar's plan is to uh, have a child with him. Plot machinations there, but the traditional narrative that she and Caesar are the parents of Caesarian and that she also negotiates an alliance with him, basically. You know, it's a dynastic alliance. It was relatively well done. She's also very young, but, you know, very clever. Mm. I would have liked to see a bit more of what Plutarch tells us, that she's, uh, you know, she's brilliant, uh, speaks many, many languages. People are sort of floored by her intelligence and her charisma. But I think I'd rather see this than the usual... It, you know, she's usually portrayed as kind of oversexed and oversexualized, And I guess you could say that this portrayal makes her look potentially oversexed. She's not continually dressed up to the nines in scanty clothing, mm. which is quite surprising in this series, given that all the Roman women are pretty scantily clad. <laughs> I don't know. It was like they were trying to do something more interesting with her, even with the design of the wigs. It, her wig looked like it was made out of rope. It didn't mm. look like, you know, they, they'd got kind of modern methods of wig making in there. Like they were trying to do something that looked more authentic and ancient. Lovely. Lovely. <sighs> Nothing like cold, stinking sweat to seduce a man. Caesar will think himself on Olympus with Aphrodite. Oh, piglet! What do you know of seduction? As long as Caesar is a man... I will have him. She seems very sure of herself. I have him, or I die. So I will have him. Maybe so, Isis. They did portray her as interested in sex and as seductress, but she was using that as a weapon. It wasn't just purely, you know, for the sake of it. Becoming pregnant by Caesar, as she says in the episode, I, I have him or I die, mm. so I will have him. She realises that she's not strong enough to stand independently without Rome. Mm. So she needs to have a solid alliance with Julius Caesar. And why not use her advantage with him? Yeah. The episode portrays it as... Pullo, who's actually the father, that's the implication. Um, mm. As I was watching it the first time, I thought, oh, this is just portraying her as, a, as the kind of Cleopatra, the, the nymphomaniac. If you watch it more carefully, it's that she, she wants a pregnancy, which she can then ascribe to Caesar. She's fairly convinced that she can seduce Caesar afterwards. And this, yeah. this, as she says, is the right moment for her to become pregnant. And, of course, it gives us that interesting Caesarian is actually Polo's son narrative, so it's a bit more soap opera stuff for the series. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what in previous portrayals of Cleopatra, and, again, I'm going by my very limited knowledge of Elizabeth Taylor uh, here, uh, a very iconic scene, which is her meeting Caesar for the first time in the Elizabeth Taylor version of events. She is in a carpet... Uh, carried in and dramatically rolled out, and she somehow does it very smoothly. Whereas I would be. It doesn't ruffle her hair at all. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I would be like, uh, where am I? <laughs> yeah, and she's supposed to be brought in secretly. That's that's the reason she's wrapped up. I guess we yes. sort of get that here. There's a lot more, um, 
lot more kind of cloak and dagger stuff in Plutarch. And it's Plutarch who is the source for this, but he doesn't say a carpet. So is the difference between a carpet and a sack just a disagreement in translations? It sort of is and sort of isn't. The, the Greek word doesn't mean uh, a carpet, but the English word carpet has changed its meaning. Right, so right. it didn't used to mean something that's quite nice to walk on, on the floor. It, it could yeah. mean a bag that wraps something up. So it's the English word that's changed its meaning, but whether they knew it or not, painters kind of took advantage of this to draw her in something much more glamorous, something with a pattern on it that you could make look oriental and exotic. Um, mm. And that carries over into the movies and the public imagination, whereas they stick with what Plutarch actually means, uh, uh, you know, a rubbishy old sack, that a sack mm. for bedding it's meant to be. And she is in that sack and it's got a kind of tie and then they release it and out she emerges. Yeah, they do do that quite dramatically. And I, I like how uh, well, Verenus and Pullo are incorporated into that scene, even though, you know, they're not in the Plutarch account. They are the ones who carry in said sack. And Cleopatra from the very beginning uses it all to her advantage it's almost like you know a flower opening up her coming out of the sack and she is dramatically poised and reaches towards caesar so he has to be the one to to take her hand and and help her up and i think you know just from that straight away from that point she is trying to seduce him almost you know she's using every opportunity that she can to impress caesar Plutarch does say that this is the first thing that charms Caesar about Cleopatra. Mm. So it is part of that seduction. I think we shouldn't underestimate, though, how advantageous this is for Caesar as well. We're talking all about what Cleopatra wants. Um, but it's not just that Caesar can't help himself because it's Cleopatra. You know, this, <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've mentioned that he doesn't have a huge army here, that he is... Uh, potentially, and, and you wouldn't get it from the way he holds himself, but potentially he's in an inferior position militarily. He needs an alliance too. Mm. And he decides that his alliance will be with Cleopatra. Um, and so it's not just that there's something in this for her. Um, yeah, it's just a bonus for him. Yeah, yeah it, it is, but it's very much in line with the kind of alliances that Romans and particularly Hellenistic kings would make. It's a dynastic mm. arrangement. Um, I know it's hard for us to think of relationships in that way, but it, you can be hard-headed about it, as both of them seem to be. Um, mm. Then mm. this makes perfect sense to them. Have you secured the upriver ports? You must do so immediately. Whoever controls the ports controls Egypt. Good advice, no doubt, if I wanted to control Egypt. Of course you do. Why else are you here? And why save me so heroically from death, if not to use me as your puppet queen? Do you dislike the notion? My wishes are immaterial. You redeemed me from captivity. I am your slave. And she very quickly acts like a queen. Mm. So you've got that point of difference between how she presents herself, how she holds herself and commands mm. everyone and uh, quickly puts Ptolemy's advisors in their place, mm. pretty much draws their death sentence, actually, really. 
as opposed to, you know, how Ptolemy is acting, well, acting his age, acting like a spoiled little child who's mm. had a bit too much power. And yeah. he's terrified of her. That he was is. Very dramatic. He is. <laughs> it's so funny. She comes in the door uh, with her wig on, with her makeup on. Now she's a queen. She comes through the door. He sees her and he turns and he races her to the throne. <laughs> and, and even though he gets there first, he still loses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we kind of get accelerated through time here a bit, mm-hmm. but what do we need to know about Caesar under siege in Alexandria? Is it that long amount of time? It seems to be like a, a good year because by the time everything comes back, the baby is born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does take a long time. Um, so I don't know how the timeline aligns with the birth of Caesarian, who's the child, um, mm. sometimes called Ptolemy the Fifteenth. But sieges are often lengthy. We often get this in the series. Uh, a lot of time, kind of concertinaed, uh, smushed yeah. up, so that we don't have to live through it. <laughs> Before the end of the episode, we do get a really great scene between Cicero, Mark Antony and Brutus who are uh, in the empty Senate and we're starting to see the seeds planted for the rest of the season uh, being all of you know another four episodes to go uh, about what's going to be happening back in Rome, how uncomfortable Cicero and Brutus are with the current situation and just how much Mark Antony is on top of everything. <laughs> Mark Antony knows what's going on, but Caesar has forgiven these men. And you also get the kind of impression that Cicero and Brutus are worried about Mark Antony mm-hmm. and what he's capable of without Caesar, which yeah. is massively foreshadowing things to come. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, their, their discussion is actually a conversation that, uh, of course, they shouldn't be holding out in public. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, and it's more directed towards, you know, what have we done going to Caesar, going over to his side? Look, Cato's still got troops in Africa. Should we go back on our word to uh, pledge loyalty to Caesar? And Brutus says something like, well, we're going to look silly if Caesar gets killed and then we've given allegiance to a dead man. Uh, None of this sounds good when Mark Antony is lurking around as he is. Uh, Mm. The implication is he has overheard this. And even if he hasn't, he can guess because he's very clever. He has this, I think you've described it as a very loaded conversation with Cicero and Brutus, as particularly obnoxious to Cicero in a very Mark Antony, on the face of it, charming way. But you can tell exactly what he's he's threatening underneath it all, um, particularly when he says to Cicero, give me your hands, brother Cicero. I'm not sure brother's very authentic, but anyway... He then goes on to say, you know, nothing escapes me. And if I ever find out that you've been, uh, if you've been doing something behind Caesar's back, I'm going to cut those hands off. Mm, Um, mm. Your lily white hands. Yes, your lily white (laughs) hands, which I think is also, I I hadn't thought of this, but you're right. Lily white hands, I think, is meant to imply you're very much an indoor person. You spend your time writing or, you know, talking in the Senate. You're not out there on campaign like I am. And, of course, it is very much, to a spoiler, um, this is <laughs> this is what's going to happen. And he's, he's really laying the, the, the land for future horrible events that are going to happen mm. to Cicero. Although mm. 
you know, nobody's going to have a good death here. Um, but it's very sinister and really enjoyable to watch. It's sold really well because Mark Antony knows what's going on. Cicero is the sort of person who, if he's afraid, you will be able to tell very clearly he's afraid in the show. That, that's how that's portrayed. And and also Mark Antony strikes me as the sort of person who will stop in a doorway just to listen in case anything's going on before he goes through said doorway. So I reckon he was doing that and he heard all of that yeah. very public conversation in the empty Senate. So, yeah. It's interesting that, I mean, this is the way Cicero's portrayed here and I think often thought of as somebody who's quite weak and, and you know, somebody who does civil work rather than military work, whereas Brutus, he doesn't. He doesn't attack him in the same way. And I don't know if they're meant to... I mean, Brutus comes from a very high family. Cicero kind of comes from nowhere. I don't know if they're playing with that as well. Mm. Um, but Antony isn't nearly as threatening to Brutus here. Mm. And by the way, Cicero isn't as cowardly as he's perhaps portrayed here. I mean, he's going to unleash a whole series of speeches. You might say, well, speeches, so what? But he's really going to have it in the neck for Antony. It, I mean, it'll rebound on him very badly. But it doesn't stop him. He could just crawl away, you know, live in one of his beautiful villas and never yeah. be hassled by any of these people. And he doesn't do that. I'm, I'm mm. not sure the series really gives him credit there. Anthony. Hmm? You said you had happy news to tell us. Oh, yes. <laughs> of course. A courier came from Alexandria. Caesar has lifted the siege and massacred the armies of Ptolemy. He is safe and sound and master of all Egypt. Finally, the episode returns to Caesar, Cleopatra, a new baby boy, Caesarian, Caesarian. Again, we are, <laughs> we are here. Verena's giving Pullo a brilliant sideways look. <laughs> he knows. He knows what Pullo's like and he knows what's happened. So does Pullo. <laughs> Pullo's there going, yay. It was the most unsure kind of cheer from Pullo. I, lo I loved it. <laughs> Overall, a good episode. Plenty of action. I'm a bit mm. disappointed not to see Cleopatra return to Rome in the episodes that are coming up because she does. She's, she's in Rome, but she's sort of cut out of that. Yeah, it, it very much streamlines things. So this is all we see of Cleopatra to be continued in season two. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast for HBO's Rome with Rihanna Nevins and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us both on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. He was a consul of Rome. I can do that a bit better. He was a consul of Rome. There we go. And thanks for listening.